everyone, this is Ankita Bharadwaj, your host for Subtle Desi Traits, and you are listening to WORT Madison 89.9 FM. Today's episode is an extension of our last episode on Israel and Palestine. And for this, we have two amazing guests for you today. The first is an ex-U.S. Air Force Arab linguist who has served in war tours. And the second is the chair of history department of University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. What I really like a lot about my guests today is that they are experts in their field. Christian Sorensen, who is our first guest and also U.S. Air Force Arab linguist, basically is an expert on how corporations and countries benefit from wars across the globe. Our second guest, who is Rachel Ida Buff, is an expert in history and is a Jewish person herself. So we're going to learn a lot today, folks. So sit tight. Currently, there's a lot of violence going on in Gaza. It makes the news literally every day. In that regards, do you think that the actions that are being taken by Israel are geared towards reformation? Or are they more of a retribution type? The, I mean, I don't even have to answer that question. That question is answered by the words of the Israeli military leaders and their actions. So let's look at their words. You have, for example, um, an Israeli military spokesperson on October 9th who said, quote, the emphasis is on damage and not on accuracy when referencing the U.S.-backed Israeli bombing campaign against Gaza. Then you have another example is Israeli uh, minister, uh, the minister of agriculture, who is also a member of the war cabinet, who said, quote, we are now rolling out the Gaza Nakba. Now, Nakba, as you know, is the Arabic word for catastrophe, and it refers to the mass expulsion of Palestinians in 1948, and they were expelled in order for Israel to create its state, which wasn't a state. It didn't exist before 1948. And it was created on Palestinian land. So we have two examples right there. That's their words. That's them. Uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu infamously invoked the biblical nation of Amalek. And I can quote you that one, which was basically saying that you know, God instructed the Israelites to commit genocide against the nation of Amalek in the, in the Bible. And so that's what... That's what they're, uh, they're doing against the Palestinians now. You also have uh, Israeli War Minister Yoav Gallant, who said, quote, we are fighting human animals, and we are acting accordingly. So that's their own words. Now, we've seen in the death toll, which today, the 19th of December, is approaching 20,000 humans dead in Gaza. They're committing genocide, and the U.S. government is fully backing that. Yes, I mean, I can't even imagine so many people. It started with like a few hundreds in the beginning, and now it is literally 20,000. And honestly, even a single life is a life taken and is, is cruelty, let alone 20,000 of them. Um, NATO has been exceptionally silent in this matter as compared to the response that they had um, in regards to Ukraine-Russia issue. What do you make of that? So... NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is an alliance formed by Washington, D.C. Uh, in 1949, if I'm not mistaken. And it was formed by Washington in order to coordinate with European governments and basically keep them in line against Moscow during the Cold War. Now, the Cold War lasted until 1990. So after the Cold War, did Washington, D.C. disband NATO? Nope. Instead, it expanded NATO, and it expanded NATO right up to Russia's borders. In 1999, for example, three countries joined NATO. In 2004, I think it was like seven. Um, I remember Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and I think the others were Bulgaria, Romania, and Slovakia and Slovenia. And then in 2009, two more joined. So Washington, D.C. not only expanded NATO, but it has repurposed it to fight Washington's wars. These are optional wars, including the invasion and occupation of Afghanistan, the 2011 destruction of Libya, and so on and so on. So the U.S. government, to answer your question, leads NATO, and it runs the show. NATO is mostly silent on the genocide in Gaza, in large part because the U.S. government 
supports the genocide fully, as do several European governments, including you know, Paris, London, Berlin, etc. So that makes sense. I mean, actually, that doesn't make sense. But yeah, thank you for answering that question. It feels like there's always some sort of war slash wars going on at any given point of time across the globe. If one of them finishes, we see a new one pop up. It has happened so many times in history that the word war uh, about like it has happened so many times in history that I genuinely feel like we're in a state of war 24-7. Why do you think that is? So the goal of the U.S. ruling class, the 1%, the proverbial 1%, the richest among us and their political appointees and the people who run the Pentagon and intelligence agencies, their goal is to protect and promote capitalism. Now, capitalism is an economic system wherein the working class, the workers, create the profit, and the capitalists, the 1% at the top, take the profit. That system doesn't just, it doesn't just appear. It has to be forced down people's throats. So, for example, the U.S. government invaded and occupied Iraq in 2003, and it has been in that country to this day. There are still thousands of U.S. military and, quote-unquote, corporate contractor personnel in Iraq. Now, what was the first thing, what was one of the first things that the U.S. Viceroy, Paul Bremer, did when he arrived in Iraq? He passed a series of edicts, of rulings, that opened up Iraq's economy to multinational corporations. So, and it wasn't just about oil. Uh, you know, multinational corporations got their hands on everything from agriculture to telecommunications. That's the goal. Now, this goal is not always achieved by military means. The U.S. ruling class has many tools, including economic sanctions and uh, intelligence agencies, in order to achieve this goal. So sometimes the forcible creation of new markets can be achieved via covert action uh, or propaganda using intelligence agencies. Sometimes it can be achieved by you know, changing the head of state in a coup, and yeah, sometimes by military force. And often people fight back. You know, they don't take this lying down. But U.S. government, the U.S. the U.S. government as the enforcer of the capitalist uh, ruling class's goals uh, has many weapons, and it's <laughs> it's it's very well organized. And um, that's that's basically the main reason why the U.S. government has so many uh, bases overseas. And the other reason is obviously the business of war. The U.S is incredibly good at profiting off of war. We have the most uh, well-organized and profitable war corporations, quote-unquote defense companies, but that's a euphemism, uh, of any other country. And it's um, so you take those two things together, the fact that war is incredibly profitable to the U.S. ruling class and wars and intelligence actions, when successful, open up countries to multinational corporate plunder. That's why... The U.S. is always at war. So how do you think an ordinary taxpayer in the U.S. benefits from these wars? All right, so that's a great question. That's a really, really good question. Um, the, the wars, they don't. It's the short answer. They absolutely don't. The U.S. public, the 99%, the working class and the poor, are hurt in a couple ways. They are hurt by, because first of all, they're the ones who end up getting economically coerced to join the military, and they deploy, and they fight sometimes, and sometimes they die, sometimes they're maimed physically or mentally. Um, so that's one way that they're hurt. Another way is that they are, all the money that could be going to public programs, social programs, programs that help people, education, infrastructure, transportation, healthcare, etc., is diverted. Most of this money is diverted into war and intelligence agencies. The U.S. military budget is absolutely enormous. It is at, it's at record highs right now. It's over $880 billion right now. No way. $880 billion. Now, imagine, what could you do every year with $880 billion? You know, the country's falling apart physically. Uh, we have a mental health crisis. We we're the, only advanced industrial nation without universal health care. These are deliberate policy decisions. And 
they're deliberate decisions made because, in large part, we, our ruling class, not we the people, but our ruling class, puts most federal discretionary funding into war year after year. So I'm pretty sure you've been watching the news. And one of the things that I have noticed is that the Republicans are pushing back against spending any more money um, in Ukraine and against Gaza, right, uh, between Israel and Palestine. Do you think, and I know I can't, can't believe I'm saying this, do you think that is Republicans taking an ethical stance? Like, what? <laughs> no, no, no. So so we have, we have... <laughs> we have one party in the United States. It's the capitalist party, okay? We have two factions. As you know, there's the blue team, the Democrats, and the red team, the Republicans. Now, they take shots at each other, right? But on matters of warfare, they agree almost 100% of the time. Now, you have a small faction of Republicans right now. You have a small group within the red team that is trying to hurt the blue team by claiming that they're against the war in Ukraine. They are not against the war in Ukraine. They're, they're not. They're absolutely not. They are pro-war. They are pro-more militarization of the Pacific against China. They are pro... I mean, look at the legislation they passed. They, you know, if you read the National Defense Authorization Act that comes out every year, and one just came out, it's on, it's on Biden's desk right now. Um, these, are, these are matters of public record. You can read it. These are thousand, over 1,000 pages in these documents. Flip to any page and see the giveaways to the U.S. war industry and the belligerent uh, foreign policy that is baked in to section after section of the National Defense Authorization Act. The Republican Party is not against war. They are playing a game because the blue team, the Democrats, are seen as the pro-Ukraine war party right now, when in reality you have two, par you have two factions of the capitalist party, and they are both pro-war, but they take shots at each other by claiming that, you know, one, one party doesn't really care about the people or, you know, one party is, uh, you know, two, two into one war as opposed to the other. The, the small group of Republicans that claim that they're against the Ukraine war are not against the Ukraine war, and I can guarantee that because they will not stop the militarization of Eastern Europe, including arms sales to every Europe, Eastern European country except for Belarus, including expansion of U.S. military infrastructure in those countries, and including deals signed by both administrations, you know, going back from Bush all the way through Obama, all the way through Trump, all the way through Biden, deals with Eastern European governments to use their military infrastructure. So it is a bipartisan effort. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, every single time somebody is like, oh, Obama was a great president, a part of me dies. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree. Um, do you think there is any connection between American operations in Afghanistan and Iraq to what is happening in Gaza right now? Um, no, the, the, to the extent that there is a connection across U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Syria and Yemen and Somalia and, you know, uh, Palestine and beyond, the one commonality is that they are U.S. wars and that they are profitable to the U.S. ruling class, and you know the U.S. dominates the business of war. That's the commonality. Um, uh, people dying is the other commonality. Now, excuse me, the U.S. is a class society. We know that. We've talked about that. The working class that I keep referring to is everyone who puts in a day's labor for a wage. So your truck drivers, your teachers, your farmers, your electricians, etc. The ruling class that I've been referring to, the capitalists in charge, these are the 1%, these are financial tycoons, these are the Wall Street barons, they're political appointees leading the Pentagon intelligence agencies, the top bureaucrats, and the capitalists, elected officials, who legislatively facilitate war and espionage. So I mention all this just to say that U.S. ruling class, like we talked about, has different tools to bully and harm different governments, defiant governments, peoples and to promote capitalism. Now, in the case of Gaza, you have a tight, 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 tight ally of the U.S. ruling class. And the U.S. ruling class has made very, very clear that it is backing Israel 100%. And we saw this just 
you know, today and yesterday, the U.S. Uh, Pentagon chief, Floyd Austin, was in Israel, and he said, our support is, you know, unconditional, our ties are unbreakable. I mean, this is, you don't have to listen to me, you can listen to him. So that's the, uh, you know, in the hell with all the civilians who are dying. That is the, uh, in, in the opinion of the U.S. ruling class, human life means nothing. It's not just human life that it's dying in Gaza. It's human life right here in the United States as well. You have a U.S. ruling class that refuses, refuses to implement universal health care, leading directly to the death of tens of thousands of people here in the United States because they can't afford medical care. That is a deliberate decision by the U.S. ruling class. So human life means nothing to them. What do they care about 20,000 dead in Gaza? They don't. They absolutely do not. So, yeah, we've been talking a little bit about how oligarchs and aristocrats literally benefit from the business of war. Mm-hmm. Um, would you mind name-dropping a few um, entities slash groups slash maybe even people that, you know, people can be like, okay, so these are the people, This is these are the groups, or these are the companies benefiting directly um, from lives being lost in Gaza right now? Sure. Because I feel sure. like... Once people can put a name to such concepts, it's easier for people to, you know, accept the fact that this is real versus, you know, using broad terms like the capitalist class or the oligarchs, et cetera. No, that's a great question. And I'm very glad you, uh, you asked that. So for, for context here, corporations consume over half of the U.S. military budget. Over half of that roughly $880 billion goes directly to corporations. And six corporations, six, dominate that half. Those six are Lockheed Martin, RTX, which used to be called Raytheon Technologies, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, General Dynamics, and L3 Harris. These are the six absolutely dominant corporations that are in the business of war. Um, and so they, and they have facilities all over the country. They're very good at playing the jobs card with local politicians. They don't actually care about jobs because just like every other industry, they you know, shut down facilities all the time. They can people. They you know, give people pink slips all the time. Um, you know, it's not about employment is not the goal. The goal is funneling profit to the 1%, to the ruling class. Um, so those are, the, those are the big corporations. You also have some, um, some smaller ones that are still – Massive by anyone's account. HII, which is also called Huntington Ingalls, specializes in making ships. That's another U.S. one. Lidos is another one. Um, Amentum, A-M-E-N-T-U-M, is another one. And Amentum is owned by private equity. Private equity firms uh, are getting increasingly more and more into the business of war. So, um, And you don't have to take my word for it. You can um, listen to their earnings calls every quarter. So these corporations have to maximize profit. That's their goal. They have to maximize profit, and they are in the business of war. So sometimes they're pretty honest. If you listen to their earnings calls that they have with uh, banks and investors every quarter, you listen to them, and you can read the transcripts there online, um, and you can see how they talk about that. You know, when they, when a conflict uh, happens, or when um, a war pops off, or when um, there's any international tension, they say, they use words like, oh, this could benefit our bottom line. They'll say stuff like that. And, you know, these, it's, uh, it's horrific because <laughs> people are dying, but they're, um, you know, what, what do they care? So how do you see, first of all, do you even see what's happening to Gazans ending? And if you do, how do you see this ending? And is there a possible way to de-escalate that situation without any further Palestinian debts? So in terms of de-escalation, de-escalation can take place if other countries unite and really say, hey, this is, this is going to end. Right now, the U.S. is very, very good, and it has decades and decades and decades of experience. And when I say U.S., I'm talking about the U.S. military-industrial complex, the U.S. government, including the State Department. Um, has decades and decades of experience coercing governments and getting them in line. And some governments go along fairly willingly. Like London is very, you know, is a, is a pretty strong ally of the U.S. Um, Canberra, 
Um, then you have, you know, your others like Paris and Berlin, and these, you know, they pretty much do what Washington D.C. says. Once in a while, they'll they'll dissent, but there's no um, there's no continuity there. There's no consistency there. So if if the people in countries that are more democratic than the United States, which is many many countries, if countries that have still have a functioning democracy, if the people in those countries say, hey basically they call their governments to account and then those governments unite and say hey Washington DC we're not we're not doing this anymore it's going to take a real effort but it it can happen now in terms of how this ends in the United States how the business of war ends that is going to take the US poor and working class uniting uniting across racial lines and um uh, saying enough's enough you know the top war profiteers go to jail there has to be accountability the top war profiteers go to jail the economic system is changed so that it's no longer profit over people you know it's a tall order but we really don't have a choice here you know and uh and ultimately the people convert the war industry into industry that actually benefits humanity that's when this ends yeah honestly i i really find it difficult for whatever you just said happening anytime soon and that breaks my heart yeah yeah um so I think everybody listening and not listening everybody can agree that Israel's position in the Middle East and the world would never be the same after this violence in Gaza. How do you see that changing in the coming decades as a direct result of this war? Wow. Um all right, so right now the US ruling class supports Israel along sort of the following lines. Israel purchases from US military industry from the war industry and those purchases are mostly done with US tax dollars as your listeners know the US government gives Israel about 3.8 billion dollars every year and Israel uses most of that money or is supposed to anyways to purchase from the US war industry Israel also sort of offers its services as a third party to US intelligence agencies and basically says all right if there's anything that you you know really don't want to be you want done but you don't want your names attached to it we'll go and do that in terms of covert activity so in return Washington DC basically protects Israel it vetoes security council resolutions that are critical of Israel it doesn't require APAC to register as an agent of a foreign government um it gives Israel a pass when it murders US citizens like the ones in Gaza right now there are several hundred dual citizens and US citizens who are in Gaza right now getting bombed um others that Israel has killed include Rachel Corey, uh Furkan Dogan, Shireen Abdulakhla, um the sailors of the USS Liberty back in the 6-day war. Um and Washington also sort of treats widespread Israeli espionage in the United States with kid gloves. So that's basically those are basically the the uh fundamentals of the US Israel relationship. And Right now the US ruling class is standing by Israel as it commits genocide against the Palestinian people in Gaza and apartheid against the Palestinian people in the West Bank. So while the world will likely treat uh Israel and see Israel differently I don't like you said, you know, I don't see the um US ruling class um uh, stopping its protection of Israel um in large part because Israel is part of um you know it's it's useful to the US ruling class it's not useful it doesn't benefit the american public but that's not what the US ruling class ruling class cares about it's um it's useful to the US ruling class and uh it you know they purchase from the US war industry and as long as that relationship is still there um the US ruling class will will continue to support Israel so it it's on the american public to change that So um you just wrote a substack it's it's a short article it's pretty good i just read it and it's called <laughs> the business of war a primer um mm-hmm. you talk about who profits in it and why the us government the, is the greatest purveyor of violence and in in that article you talked about the role of us supreme court in this whole fiasco right. and how it has helped big business um gain authority and gain more profits uh through these wars. Can you tell us a bit more about that specific case? Sure. Yeah. 
So um, the Substack is thebusinessofwar.substack.com, and I do a significant amount of research about this business. And the recent article you're talking about is called The Business of War, a Primer, and it's basically 40 points, 40 paragraphs that if somebody's new to anti-war or new to trying to understand why the U.S. is always at war, these are sort of the top 40 that you can read and, and get a, a sense of sort of how things work. So number three is the U.S. Supreme Court helped big business gain authority in the United States. So a corporation is basically an organization that is that takes the is designed to make sure that the workers work and create profit, and that profit goes to the top. That profit goes to executive compensation. You know, CEOs make enormous, enormous amounts of money, something like 350 to 400 times what the average worker makes. That is profit that the worker had created. Um, then other profit that the workers create go to stock dividends for public companies and go to uh, stock buybacks. You know, a corporation will buy back its stock in order to in basically inflate the stock price, so increasing the value that the shareholders have. So that's what we have these days. We have massive, massive, massive corporations that generate enormous amounts of profit. The workers generate the profit, and the ruling class basically takes the profit. So what's the Supreme Court got to do with all this? Well, a corporation wasn't always very good at, uh, or so good that we have today, at influencing government. And so basically since the early 70s, there have been a series of Supreme Court decisions that have gradually given corporations more and more authority over the political process. So you have, for example, Buckley versus Vallejo back in the 70s that ruled that limits on election spending are unconstitutional. Then you have uh, First National Bank of Boston versus Bellotti later on that gave corporations a First Amendment rights to put money toward ballot initiatives. Then again, you have FEC versus Massachusetts Citizens for Life that later allowed corporations to use nonprofits in order to influence the political process. And you have more. You know, this just kept going. You know, the Supreme Court later allowed corporations to spend unlimited amounts, unlimited amounts on political contributions. And on and on and on. And that's sort of that's the Citizens United one, most famous in twenty ten. And it just kept going. And so now you have corporations that are incredibly, incredibly powerful, and they wield that power in order to influence politics. And so they, these corporations excel not just in war, but they now excel at profiting off of even the most basic human need. You know, we all need shelter, yet corporations are allowed to buy up houses and you know jack up the rent. The corporation doesn't even have to be from your from your state. It could be you could be living in California, and the corporation is a multinational financial firm in, in you know, New York City. How's that okay? You know, healthcare, incredible profits there. Food, incredible profits there. My local uh, grocery store is owned by a private equity firm. And then the one down the street, <laughs> the one down the street is owned by a Dutch multinational corporation. How is this okay? So this is, these are the, the tangible results of big business just dominating our lives. Well, I think we have had a great conversation today, and I learned a lot. I think that's why I even do this show, because personally, I think I'm a little bit selfish, and I want to learn new things, so there's that. And so I'm really glad that we had this conversation today, and I think that's all the time we have for today, Christian. Hey, thank you so much. Our second guest today is Rachel Ida Buff. Rachel Ida Buff is a writer and a working historian. She is currently chair of the history department at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Her most recent book is A is for Asylum Seeker, Words for People on the Move. She is also a founding member of Milwaukee Jewish Voice for Peace. So welcome to my show, Rachel. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Of course. Uh, my first question to you today is, a lot of people are making what's happening in Gaza right now a Muslim versus Jewish problem. As a Jewish person yourself, do you think that description of the issue is accurate? 
Absolutely not. First of all, it's really important that there are Muslim and Christian and atheist Palestinians living in Gaza and the West Bank. And there are um, also many uh, Palestinians in Israel. So Israel, of course, is not only Jewish, though of course it is known as the Jewish state, and Jews have rights that non-Jews don't have in Israel. And as far as global politics go, we've seen very beautiful, very diverse mobilizations in support of Palestinian rights that include Jews and Christians and Muslims and secular folks. So that very reductive statement that this is somehow about Muslims versus Jews is divisive and dangerous and untrue. Israel has been using the excuse that the land belongs to the Jewish people and are claiming themselves to be indigenous to the land. Some have even compared it to the struggle First Nation people have facing here in the U.S. So I just want to know, what do you think about it? Do you think it's a fair comparison? No, that is really an unfair and inaccurate and incredibly ideologically charged statement. Whenever we're talking about origins, about who was here first, we're in the territory of inflamed ideological statements, not historical, accurate reality. The historical truth is that Muslims and Jews and Christians and lots of folks have lived in historic Palestine for hundreds and hundreds of years, more and less harmoniously. But the cataclysm of the founding of the state of Israel by European powers, mainly Britain, in 1948, precipitated the arrival of a Jewish state on lands historically occupied by Palestinians. There were other folks there as well. 1948 is referred to by Palestinians as the Nakba, the disaster, because it resulted in loss and displacement for Palestinians. So the arrival of Israel is the European imposition of a nation on lands occupied for a long time by Palestinians. So the comparison to the struggle of indigenous nations in the Americas is deeply offensive to Palestinian rights. And it's also very incorrect. It is absolutely not indigenous land of Jewish people. Certainly there are references to Palestine in the Bible, um, and certainly there have been Jews in the region for hundreds of years. Indigeneity is a relationship we have with the land. And I think it's being used as some kind of or originary claims to nationhood. Israel, again, is a nation that prioritizes the rights of Jews and discriminates against non-Jews, both within Israeli boundaries and within Gaza and the West Bank. And the excuse that somehow this has historically always been Jewish land is both false and dangerous. So my follow-up question to that is that a lot of people say that Jewish people who are supporting Palestinian cause or the fact that um, Gaza is right now under siege and there's a lot of violence and genocide happening. When Jewish people, you know, support those statements, they're called, quote-unquote, leftist. Do you think that statement is true in any way? So our tradition as Jewish people has a practice called Betselem Elohim, which says that we were all made in the image of God. So it is very deeply Jewish for me to support a ceasefire in Gaza against the murder of 20,000 and more mostly civilians, mostly women and children. 
it has nothing to do with um, somehow betraying my Judaism. In fact, it is the most Jewish thing I can think of to do. In addition, as an American Jew, $3.8 billion of tax monies go to fund the Israeli regime every year. And this is since 1948. $3.8 billion. You know, I think that we militarize the region. We spend so much money giving Israel these deadly, deadly arms that we see being deployed against civilians now. And I wonder what we would do with that money at home if we weren't spending it like that. Our schools need money. Our roads need money. Our health care system needs money. Our people are homeless. There's mental illness crises. There's so much we could do if we weren't funding Israel the way that we are. And other, you know, this is a, a broader imperial practice of funding foreign aid. And I guess I also want to say that as a Jewish person, I don't particularly believe that the United States spends that $3.8 billion a year because of its deep love for the Jewish people. There are strategic interests that Israel serves for the United States. There is Christian Zionism that really wants to see the Jews in Israel because they believe that will bring the coming, the second coming of um, Jesus. There are all kinds of things at play. Very few of them are in favor of Jewish people. So I think, actually, the most deeply Jewish thing we can do is to stand with the people who are experiencing, and I use this term advisedly, a holocaust in Gaza. Gaza, the pictures from Gaza look like the pictures of Europe, of Jewish ghettos in Europe during World War II, the kind of, um, the kind of destruction, the, the starvation. You know, there are war crimes being committed by Israel against the Palestinian people. It is absolutely the ethically Jewish thing to do to stand with Palestinians right now. You just said something which really piqued my interest, something about second coming and the Christian interest in the area. Can you please elaborate on that more about what you mean about it and how is that relevant in this situation? Sure, sure. I mean, there was a march, a rally uh, to support Israel in um, late October or early November in D.C. It was a big rally organized by mainstream Jewish organizations to support Israel. And it surprised me to learn that among the speakers there was John Hagee, a Christian Zionist, who has intimated that Hitler was helping to expedite the second coming of Jesus by getting rid of Jews. Right, So in my book, these kinds of Christian Zionists, not all of them, but there is a definite strain of anti-Semitism, like send the Jews back to Israel, let them do whatever, let them occupy the Holy Land, because those are the conditions that will bring Jesus back. This is not a philo-Semitic crew of people. These are not people who care about the Jewish people. These are people who believe that Israel is, Jews in Israel will bring their religious objectives to bear. It's similar to the United States support of the state of Israel, and then its use of Israel as a proxy to support the apartheid regime in South Africa, to support the genocidal regime in Guatemala in the 1960s. Israel did these things for the U.S. because it didn't look good for the United States to be doing them. So both the state of the United States government, the State Department, the CIA, etc., and the Christian Zionists, they have their own ends. They are not, you know, that they say, you know, you, you hear Biden say, oh, Jews wouldn't be safe without Israel. That's why we have to support them. Now, that's a problem in two ways. One, because I don't think that's why we're sending blood and treasure to Israel. $3.8 billion a year. And two, because when Biden said that, I have never been to Israel. I plan to live my life and raise my children and work my job here in the United States. What he was telling me as an American Jew is that I'm not safe 
in this country. I need Israel somehow. You know, that's a very scary and anti-Semitic message to me as an American Jew. Yeah, no, for real, that's kind of strange now that you're talking about it. Also really scary and doublespeak, honestly. It's like, oh, we care for Jewish people, but also we're, we want them in a box, a box called exactly. Israel. <laughs> and you all need another place. Like, you're not, it's not okay for you to be Americans. You need, you need to have, and like, I have to say, like, look, my parents grew up in this country during the Holocaust. They were terrified by what they heard. And they believe, like many Jews of their generation, like many Jews in this country now, that Jews need Israel, that, that that's the only state in the world that cares about Jews. What I believe, what Jewish Voice for Peace believes, is that we aren't safe until all people have security and dignity, that our safety is about solidarity and in this case, solidarity with Palestinians. We believe that our destinies are entwined with the destinies of Palestinians and that we can't be safe anywhere until a family in Gaza can have a day where they're not living in mortal terror and struggling to eat and have water because of this cruel siege that's now gone on for three months. As you were talking, I just remembered that Jewish people also moved, migrated to India at one point of time to seek refuge. And mm-hmm. uh, we do not see a problem over there. So point being, it's not a Jewish people problem. It's a specifically political problem, specifically connected to land occupation. Because if honestly, if that is a Jewish people problem, then why are Jewish people not creating a problem in India? You know, it's, it's, it's like doesn't make a sense. Um, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> what do you think about that? Yes, absolutely. We are a diasporic people. We have lived in many parts of the world. I think that, you know, what we see in Palestine with the founding of the state of Israel, if you think about it, it was Europe saying, oh, you know, we have all these displaced people, particularly Jews, we'll find a home for them. So one group of refugees compel another group to become refugees. The idea of starting UNRWA, the United Nations Agency for Palestinian Refugees, was that it was going to be a short-term problem in 1948. UNRWA celebrated its um, 75th anniversary recently. It's, there, there are refugee camps that generations of Palestinians have been living in since 1948. The occupation of Palestinian lands by Israel has created a vast refugee policy. And I have to say that, you know, in this terrible time since October 7th, when there's just so much loss and so much violence, some of the things that have stood out to me is that Israel, a country founded as a homeland for refugees, is bombing refugee camps and hospitals. You know, these are places where the human need for safety is supposed to be honored. So to watch the the footage of young children running away from the IDF, being shot by the IDF in refugee camps is just mind-blowing. So true. Talking about October 7th, time and again, different media sources have claimed that Mossad, which is an Israeli intelligence agency, knew about the attack on October 7th a year before it happened. Do you think that claim has any truth to it? Has Israel ever attempted similar actions to take over Palestine land in the past? It's difficult for me to evaluate the claims about Mossad. But what's very true is that Israel has been trying to expand into Gaza and the West Bank, the lands left to Palestinians after the 1967 war, since 1967. We have the most historically right-wing regime. You know, we have had, you know, some of the um, cabinet members of Netanyahu's government, like Shmatkin and Ben Gavir, speak freely and without worry about needing to ethnically cleanse Palestinians from the, from the land. So what we see here, listen, the attack by Hamas on October 7th 
I agree with Palestinian human rights groups who castigate that as a war crime as well, in addition to the Israeli war crimes that have happened since then. But what we've seen is this disproportionate response, this you know, pretty much unprecedented siege in terms of how many people are killed daily, the kinds of weapons used against civilians. It is a war crime to have a disproportionate response like this. We are already seeing real estate advertisements for what Gaza will look like after they've cleared it of Palestinians when it becomes beachfront property for Israel. Right? This is genocide. This is ethnic cleansing. This is about claiming the land. And it is the end it is always the end. It is always the ambition of settler colonialism to replace the indigenous population with another population. If you think about the history of this country, right, indigenous nations have survived, but barely. The kind of population loss we see from 1492 to the present, the kind of land loss we see, it's, you know, settler colonialism is always about expurgating every trace of the indigenous people. And that's what we're seeing here. So true. Yeah, I've seen those ads you're talking about, about the real estate, you know, um, ads about creating beachfront properties. It just enrages me, honestly. It's how can people be like, how can people be so ignorant and not know what's actually going on and still have the audacity, honestly, at this point, I'll call it that, to advocate for Israel somehow. I don't get it. It's profane. I agree. It's like when I saw that ad, I, I thought it was a joke. Honestly, I thought it was like a social media, you know, fake news, <laughs> you know. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Me too. Like, it, this can't be real, but it's very real. Finally, what would you like to say to our audience today who would like to help Palestinians and speak up for them, but are afraid of being called anti-Semitic? I, I guess I would like to, and this is something that Jewish Voice for Peace is often called on to do, because... I think non-Jews are often very afraid. We're told, right, like Congress just adopted a resolution and universities are really clamping down on this notion that being pro-Palestinian is somehow anti-Semitic. I won't go into detail about what I think is a new McCarthyism happening around that, which allows forces of repression to silence Palestinian solidarity. What I will say is that, again, to return to the tradition of Betzalem Elohim, we are all made in God's image. It is not anti-Semitic to, do, to be in solidarity with Palestinians. I believe it is deeply, deeply Jewish that our, our faith and our tradition compels us always. It says 36 times in the Torah that you should be in solidarity, that you should welcome the stranger, that this is our tradition. It's a very scary time because of the kind of political repression we see. What people can do that's kind of like, you know, maybe less threatening and scary, are, we've seen tremendous motion in Wisconsin because of um, the activism of the Wisconsin Coalition for Justice in Palestine towards our elected officials. Um, the coalition has appeared at many of Tammy Baldwin's events since October 7th to ask for a ceasefire. And just last week, uh, uh, Senator Baldwin moved a little. She didn't say ceasefire. She said humanitarian pause. So one thing people can do that's pretty Pretty simple is to call or email your elected representatives and ask them for a ceasefire. You know, that's that's something that you can do without, you know, being public. You can do it from home. You can do it from your computer. You can, you know, we need more voices. People can um, write letters to the editor. People can speak up in their congregations if they're comfortable doing so. We have this beautiful Wisconsin Coalition for Justice in Palestine with over 60 organizations that are all kinds of organizations, faith-based, um, secular, neighborhood, civil rights. You know, there's all different kinds of organizations. There's every different kind of person, old, young, black, white, Latinx, you know, Muslim, Hindu, there's all kinds of people and there's space for everybody. There's all kinds, we need all kinds of work. There are many, many. We have a webpage that you can go to. We have all different kinds of events. You could 
if you if you want to test the waters, appear at an event and you know appear at a protest and just you know dip your toe in and see if it's comfortable for you. I guess I want to say that mainstream Jewish organizations are very defensive on this point, and I think they make people feel particular. You know that, that for example, the controversy about the phrase "from the river to the sea." Palestine must be free. I've heard Jewish people say, well, that scares me. And I've asked why. And they say, well, it's the cleansing, it's the clearing out of Jews from the land of Israel. When I hear that phrase, which is very common at our events, at our protests, what I hear is Palestinians talking about lands that they have called home in an aspirational and hopeful way. They're not calling for death to anyone. They're not calling for ethnic cleansing. They're talking about experiencing a freedom in the lands of historic Palestine that has been denied them by occupation, by apartheid, by constant war since 1948. They're calling for, after 75 years from this, a sense that they could walk unbowed and free in the lands where their ancestors have lived for generations. That doesn't feel threatening to me. That's very beautiful to me. That feels like a land I could walk around in too, between the river and the sea. But I think mainstream Jewish organizations have had a lot of stake in trying to demonize Palestine solidarity and make it seem as though people like me are somehow either self-hating Jews or um, were duped we're silly, we don't understand. I understand very clearly, and I think that history and justice are on the side of the Palestinians in this case. Thank you so much for all the words and knowledge you have provided to us, to me and my listeners today. I really appreciate the time you've taken out today to talk to us about this very important issue, Rachel. I appreciate your taking the time to to talk to me and other folks. Um, It's so important that people... Um, have access to information that um, that allows them to broaden their points of view on this. I appreciate what you're doing so much. Thank you so much, Ankita. That does it for the show. You've been listening to Subtle Desi Traits, a monthly show right here on WORT Madison. I'm your host, Ankita Bharadwaj. Coming up in a few minutes is Strictly Jazz Sounds. But first, the Insurgent Radio Kiosk. <laughs> 